it wasn't about not having quality service providers. It was the unintended consequences of having these restrictions on public utility districts. And, and those unintended consequences were access to federal funds. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Although I'm building my office back and soon I might be saying I'm in Minneapolis again. We'll see. The show today is something that's just, it was one of the most amazing things that happened this year in, in my line of work, which is the decision, um, the effort to, to repeal the Washington laws that made it difficult for public entities to, to build networks uh, under multiple conditions. And we're going to talk more about that. Uh, for our guest today, we have a returning champion, Angela Benink, who is the telecom director at Kitsap Public Utility District. Welcome back. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, we've had you on talking about Kitsap, and we've had you on talking about uh, NOAAnet, the Northwest Open Access Network, more generally. And it's it's wonderful to to grab some of your time. I know that you don't sleep anymore. That's that's correct. It's all broadband all the time now. We also have Laura Lowe, who, if you look at the Twitter feed, also does not appear to sleep, is is very passionate about issues that I care about as well. Uh, she is the executive director of Share the Cities Community Education, as well as Share the Cities uh, Action Fund. Uh, welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you for having me on. I'm a huge fan and so glad to tell the story of what happened in Washington this year. Excellent. I just I never realized it before, but the title of your organization is brutal for someone like me who's trying to hide a slight lisp constantly. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that. Oh no, accessibility. Um let's start let's start Angela with a uh, for people who want the deep history of all the interesting stuff that Kitsap has done um in the in the real nitty-gritty on the models that have been used with the um local utility districts. They can look at our past interviews, but uh give us just a brief update of what's been going on more recently. As all the nation and the world saw in 2020, when we were uh, sent home and at least in Washington state, we had a stay home, stay healthy order, which required everyone, schools, everyone to go home. We saw a change in the view of broadband. And so uh, Kids at PUD has been operating a broadband network for almost 20 years. And in 2016, we started to provide that to residents but it wasn't until 2020 that everyone was behind this saying, we need this. We need this for our students. We need this for our, our homes. We need this to work. Um, and so it truly changed the perception of where we were at and the amount of demand that we had at the same time. And so our uh, team, we're a pretty small team actually at Kitsap, but our team just stayed working the whole time and really focused on supporting schools and and focusing on the students because we knew if we focused on the students that would be giving their parents access as well. So we used our model, which is the local utility district model that you talked about for, and I know you you have other information on that, but it allows homeowners to spread the cost of construction out over 20 years. And that is the only way as a public entity we're able to finance uh, the ability to push services out. So using that model, we're now at over a thousand customers connected. So we added hundreds over the past year and um, are continuing to do more. As, as most of the world knows, uh, or most of the nation knows, it's grant season. 
And so we've just been applying for grants after grants and, and we have a ton of support from our community in, in whether that is from our county government, our city government, or um, grassroots efforts in supporting us applying for those. And you serve a, a mix of audiences from uh, quite rural areas where there's nothing available to urban areas where they may have an existing cable option or something that is um, pretty um, standard in, in many cities. That, that is true. In fact, most of our population, we are not considered a rural community in our county anymore. However, we do have very rural areas where there are one residence to 10 acres, and those can be the most expensive areas to build out. And we also have the added complicating factor of it rains a lot <laughs> and we have trees and we have hills. And so line of sight options become an issue too. So we have these rural communities um, that were just forgotten in some of the efforts. And for people who aren't aware, this is not the high desert then. This is the area just west of Seattle. And um, and Laura, you focus um, on areas more um, often in Seattle and King County. Um, but I know you, you care about um, all kinds of other areas um, regarding um, the mission of Share the Cities. And so tell us about Share the Cities. Yeah, so we started out as a land use advocacy organization focusing on zoning and housing affordability both in Washington state and across the country. And we got really active um, as kind of like a Patreon funded collective back in like 2016 um, as part of kind of like the YMBS in my backyard movement um, and engaged on some really difficult, challenging, stressful land use conversations that were happening in Seattle through all the way up through about 2018. Um, and then um, way back in 2016, I personally participated in something that was hilarious. It was a slow internet walk where about 15 <laughs> Sorry, of I, us. I love it. Yeah. It was, it was Devin Glazer and Upgrade Seattle, and they did a slow internet Brett walk Hamill, starting right? at, yes, yes, the, the Comcast offices. And we all walked as slow as like, you know, zombies in a zombie movie in the pouring rain all the way to City Hall. And it took hours and it was so funny. And people were just like, tons of media showed up and it was on the news and we had signs and, you know, we had the loading sign, you know, and you're just like waiting for the loading. Um, and at the time they were pushing for an initiative. And so at the time I knew nothing about broadband or megabytes or, you know, take rates or fiber and copper. Or, you know, I didn't know any of that till like six months ago, but I knew that I didn't like my internet. I didn't like Comcast interference in our elections. Um, in terms of basically like buying the mayorship and all of that kind of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I went on the slow internet walk and it was fantastic fun. Um, yeah, so more, more silly actions to get people engaged. This is the thing, like, so you came into my consciousness when all of a sudden this this new person or group, uh, from my perspective, is on Twitter and social media all over the place saying the right things and very excited about this legislation in Washington. So... We'll talk about where that legislation came from, but tell so us how you got one night, I was complaining that, you know, if we tried to put forward another initiative, what's the amount of money that Comcast would throw against us? I was kind of going back and forth with Devin from Upgrade Seattle on Twitter. And then all these people started reaching out to me like, oh, are you, are you organizing on this? Do you have meetings? Do you want to meet up? And so I had a first meeting, like I think like last September and all these people showed up. And so now we have about 40 folks in a Slack group and 
We meet every other Thursday and we've had guest speakers, organizers, uh, folks that have done ballot initiatives, uh, folks that have, have built broadband, people that have done legislation. So we've had a lot of like education. Um, and then we were invited by Representative Gregerson, who's a state representative, to attend these fantastic meetings that she was doing um, to assemble folks across the state on digital equity. And so really early on, we were getting um, plugged in to statewide efforts on that. And then um, County Council Member Zahalai for King County is in an area that has a lot of um, folks it's incredibly um, racially diverse community that has uh, uh, truly, you know, underserved and and some unserved folks in King County, and um, has long been um, a disinvested part of King County. And so uh, he and his staff are extremely passionate. And so we start we started talking to them, and everyone was just connecting us to everyone and talking to Ryan Hawkins at the ports and and. Then eventually we got connected to Representative Hansen. So um, compared to my housing advocacy, which it took me years to kind of get plugged into who's who and what's what and get invited to all the spaces, it was instant. And obviously because of COVID, you know, every meeting I'm in, you know, people were talking about like, wow, this would be great if we had public broadband. Like it was just kind of a thing everyone was throwing around. And so we decided to steal the name from Upgrade Seattle and be Upgrade King County. And we're still, you know, in communication with them and building on their work through the housing advocacy. I had kind of amassed about 7,000 Twitter followers. So that was helpful for spreading <laughs> yeah, the word. Helpful. It was a little helpful. So, yeah. Yeah. Many of them engaged and uh, active yes. folks. Yes. So, Angela, um, you, like I, have memories of, of many years past of getting our hopes up that uh, a bill, uh, this is not the first time a bill is introduced, but uh, but it caught fire this time in ways that we always hoped it would. Uh, can you give us, give us a little bit of a history of that? Since 2000, when the legislation was passed that allowed wholesale um, authority, telecommunication authority for PUDs, uh, efforts were put in place at that time to try to lift those restrictions on the wholesale only and the retail retail restrictions there. In Pacific County, this was one of the drivers there in that they were providing services. They were doing this before uh, 2000 when the, when the uh, legislature passed that authority. And so they actually had to sell off all the retail business to another provider. And so you had this effort going from then. And it, it wasn't about not having quality service providers. It was the unintended consequences of having these restrictions on public utility districts. And, and those unintended consequences were access to federal funds for driving out broadband services. And those were from the rural utility service. Uh, they had restrictions on their grant funding that didn't allow people who were non-retail to apply, as well as being able to access E-rate funds for schools. And E-rate is a huge program um, operated through USAC that allows schools to fund most of their telecommunications infrastructure and services. And right away, and, and I was working with Northwest Open Access at the time, um, right away, you had this underlying provider that was no longer able to access that service, and you had to go through a wholesale system. So it was costing our schools more 
just because of this legislation. So there were unintended consequences. Every year legislation was introduced and Senator John McCoy was a huge driver for this and pulled together working groups of the large service providers and the PUDs and PUDs predominantly um, because those were the only municipalities at that time looking and providing telecommunications services. Since that time, we've added a lot of other entities who are supporting their communities getting access to broadband. But working with with Senator McCoy and the many other supporters throughout uh, the legislature, we have had great successes. And as far as just support and growth and funding through capital funds. And then we've also had these challenges with these unintended consequences. And so with um, in, in 2018, I will say that is the first change that was made uh, to retail authority. And that allowed Kids Have PUD specifically and retail authority in restricted conditions. And so what that was for, and, and I mentioned the local utility districts already, what that was for was it was to ensure that any of those residents who had paid up to, um, we've, had, we've had residents pay up to $60,000 to extend fiber to their home, but on average around $7,000, they were always insured that they would have access to a retail service provider. Should all the retail service providers go away? And so that legislation was uh, driven by Christine Rolfus and was passed in 2018. And then, as I mentioned before, and as Laura has mentioned, everything changed in 2020. And we took that, took this broad knowledge that we have been pushing forward. It just became real. For everyone, right? It just became real that broadband was necessary. And we didn't want to see the same unintended consequences with any of the federal funds that were being talked about pushed out. And so when Representative Hansen brought forward the idea of bringing forward a bill that would allow public entities to provide services on a retail basis, it really, our support for that bill was about funding. It was about accessing those federal funds to allow organizations like Kids at PUD to build out. And to clarify, what you're saying is that uh, you don't necessarily have to offer retail services, but if you are unable to offer retail services, then you cannot compete for the funds. You can get the money and like you don't even have to offer retail services. It just has to be a check mark that you're able to offer retail services to qualify for funds. That is exactly true. And so Kids at PUD is committed to a wholesale open access model. We think that is better for our residents. We think it is better that they have choice. Um, however, if if they can't access those federal funds because of a, a rule that was put in place to protect incumbent territories, it, it makes it challenging as a citizen. Right. So, so we have a pandemic. Uh, Representative Hansen pushes the bill forward. What's the first sense that something's going differently? And um, I guess, let me ask you, Laura, like, what's your first, when did you first well, learn about it? Well, we had a thousand people sign up for the first hearing. And so, um, you know, this is the first time that you don't have to go all the way to Olympia, you know, whether you're in Bellingham or Spokane or Vancouver, you know, they had tried uh, some pilot programs around remote testimony in the past, but the the scale of being able to sign in for a bill present, you know, just changed everything. All of a sudden, 
between the educators across the state and the ports and the public utility districts and um, other folks that came together, tribal, a lot of tribal leaders, um, just everyone was kind of mobilizing and to see that turnout um, and, and it was just very heartening, you know, to see the people that, you know, subscribe to my newsletter and be able to see their, their names on the sign in and to know that like I helped make that happen was really powerful. Um, and yeah, so I think that that was, that was a, just a moment where it was like, I think, uh, a lot of, I think there's a lot of giant egos in including, uh, you know, including representative Hansen in, in the, the house and the Senate and Washington, just like there are in every, you know, every place. Um, and people were really competing for those kind of like sign-ins. And so other legislators were like, wait, how did you do that? You know? <laughs> and so I think there was a, that really, uh, there's that competitive nature of that everyone has. And so that was, that was the moment, I think. Um, and there were very, very great bills that were getting, you know, 20 people signed in. And so I think that was the moment because then it allowed the news folks to kind of latch on to that. And, and then, you know, the earned media just kind of is exponentially there. You've, you know, you've got folks for the first time realizing like what upload and download speeds mean and realizing that 25.3 is, is horrific as a, as a measure of, of being served and, and all of that. Like the average person, whether, whether they know what 25.3 is or, or any of that, they were experiencing it. Like I, I was uh, unable to be part of my sister-in-law's wedding on WebEx. Like I, um, I had to switch uh, from, you know, one provider to another to be able to use WebEx. Um, you know, I had never done a speed test before um, and I was getting one up, one down on, in the city of Seattle. And now I get, you know, I don't get that. So, and I didn't know, I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, and so you can be a broadband fan and not know any of this. And so a lot of those folks, I'm sure that signed in those thousand people, they don't know any of the, the, the ins and outs that all of your listeners do. Um, but they knew that they were feeling unfair. They knew that, that they went to when, when they went to their friend's friend's place or when they were, you know, playing game night with their friends, some people had seemed to have no problem, but maybe they were struggling and, and, you know, people have been talking about digital equity, educators, librarians, and other folks for years and years and years. And, you know, I hear a lot of frustration from them, like, oh, now you all finally believe me. <laughs> so, you know, there's that too, that pent up um, from the, the experts um, that it's like, okay, you know, now, now we're all on the same page with this. Um, so just, you know, the pandemic, um, the thousand people signing in. Um, you know, to, to Hanson's credit, he early on um, got us all in meetings together on a regular basis, you know, leading up to the bill, there were daily check-ins. Um, so just a lot of making sure that we were coordinated and he used a lot of war analogies, which I wasn't comfortable with. <laughs> a lot of the broadband army and the war room and you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, that I, that I, I was just like, really? That's but, what that's what a successful coalition is, though. Like people that make you slightly oh, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but but I'm very grateful that we were included. There were a lot of people with big lists that they could mobilize that he got, you know, there that that, that had thousands of people on their statewide lists. Um, and then to the credit of the folks that showed up and told their stories, um, I don't know uh, if if Angela was part of that, but the the folks that told their stories of you know 
driving to a parking lot for school or accessing telehealth or like the personal storytelling is really strong and really powerful. And the pressure on the, the legislators, they know that this is a bipartisan issue. They know that this is a populist issue. They know that small businesses are impacted. They know this is an economic development issue. They know that what side they want to be seen on. And so even, you know, there's a lot of like abstentions or people not really you know, there wasn't a lot of people that wanted to come out strong against this. There was one awful, awful uh, legislator, you know, that that kept talking about socialism and all of this stuff and trying to, you know, say this was a socialist issue, but it's not, right? People feel like this is an issue like libraries and digital access in the digital commons are, are the idea that it should be utility so far hasn't been tinged with that same kind of like, uh, that this is an ideological position, mm-hmm. which is a great really nice advocacy space. Angela, I'm curious if when you got a sense that this is taking off, if your reaction was, oh man, I've got enough stuff going on. Like, I mean, like at least partly where you're just sort of like, am I really going to be doing all this telecom stuff in the legislature now too? I'm trying to trying to build a network here. So I, I have to admit, we thought 2018, we were done, right? We have our, we have our stop gap. We can protect our residents who have funded and, and we're good to go. Yeah, we were not expecting to be back at the legislation legislature supporting this with new legislation in 2020 um, or 2021. Um, obviously, all the work starts in 2020, and then and then the the uh, legislation actually is discussed at the beginning of the session. Yeah, definitely not the plan. And uh, we had to take a little bit of a divide and conquer type of mentality. And I had to actually step out a bit and focus on the runnings of a utility and making sure we were getting those out to as many customers as possible. Why our general manager, Bob Hunter, who you've talked with before, he stepped in and really spoke as an advocate for our communities and worked closely with uh, Representative Hansen and our our lobbyist team to to make sure that we had the those stories out there. It was you know the best time, right? Uh, Laura mentioned it's nonpartisan. It hasn't always been nonpartisan, but it became nonpartisan as soon as everyone went home. And and again, as she mentioned, the thousand people signing in on that bill, you no longer could ignore it. You no longer could say thank you for for let's hear it and then let's push it off. It, it required the um, legislators to actually engage at that point. So as we fast forward then, at what point do you have a sense this thing's moving and the industry is is starting to fight back hard? Because I feel like it doesn't take a lot for industry to bottle up a bill usually. And there's usually a lag before they recognize that they have to do more if they really want to stop something that's moving. And so I'm curious if you have had a sense of, or if there's any moments that were along those lines where you were like, all right, now the big guns are coming out. Uh, we, we did see right in the beginning that it was being tied to pole attachments, um, which has been a huge issue over the course of the years between private and, and the public electric companies who own the polls. Kitsap PUD was, is not an electric PUD. We are just telecom water and sewer. And that is one of the reasons why um, Bob took that front and center position, because this was not about pole attachment agreements. This was about 
uh, getting access to funding. It was about pushing these services out. It was about lifting restrictions on multiple municipalities to be able to look at how do we better get kids connected? How do we better get um, people who need to work connected? How do we better do that? And if municipalities can step up and do that, let's lift restrictions on them to do so. Because how it's been functioning so far clearly hasn't worked. Yeah. I think it sort of was like a resolution. So I don't think that the average person understands retail authority or, you know, um, any of that. Like, like right. the word the wholesale average... requires, I mean, for, for it took me years to just get that without having to think it through. Yeah. So I think that, I think that most of the electeds that I talk to that are like, oh yeah, let's do public broadband. They don't know anything in terms of, they don't know how many speeds they're getting in their home. They don't know about middle mile or last mile. They don't know any of this stuff. Uh, they don't understand the monopolistic view, you know, AKA, you know, overbuilding. Like I'm constantly having to explain all of that um, just over and over and over again to people that are, that are excited and like, let's do it. How do we do it? Um, and so just that basic education piece, you know, to fast forward to like, where are we right now? Angela and I are working um, on creating with a, a group of like 15 other folks education materials that community members like myself and others across the state um, can use, you know, a, a PowerPoint presentation, you know, maybe, maybe a video of that and, and going out and kind of doing like, you know, Drew Hansen's calling it the roadshow, right? Like, how do we actually get it deployed? You know, I, I liken it to tenant legislation. You can pass all the great tenant legislation, but if there's no education piece, if there's no outreach, if there's no enforcement, if there's no, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Um, one statistic in, in the King County broadband study that they did in 2020, which is an amazing study, and I want everyone to look at it because the data visualizations on the story map that they did and the way that they present the information is so accessible. They found that 47% of households who would qualify for low-cost equipment were not aware of programs mentioned in the survey. And so we can talk about you know, 90% of the county having digital access or, or broadband access, or we can talk about 80% of, of folks under $30,000 a year incomes having access, which sounds amazing, like, oh, 80, 90%. But when we talk about like, well, what does that even mean? You know, like if, if people that, you know, I liken it to the emergency broadband benefit now where, um, you know, we have all this money just sitting there because people don't know about it. And when you contact in my case, Comcast and say, I don't have a job right now. And they don't bring up the internet essentials. They're not, you know, they're in the business to upsell. And, and one of the basic reasons that Upgrade King County exists and is so passionate about this is consumer protections and, and really like who's going to look out for the consumer and who has failed us. And I think that's something that rural and urban and suburban folks can all agree on is we are being failed. Um, and we have been failed. And there's been so many false promises, you know, the FCC and this idea of that we can't build or send money to places that already have service at some sort of, you know, insignificant level 25-3. I want to get people mad. I want get I want to get everyone as mad as I am that I didn't realize how inadequate that was um, as a way to mobilize people. Let's, is there anything that we want to talk about in terms of 
um, dramatic last second type of stuff. Um, yeah. we, I want to make sure we have time to talk about what happens next. And that's important. But I want to talk yeah. about um, our our governor signing the two bills with two different hands. So okay. there was two bills. Yeah, I feel so like that that's let's such pause a great that for story. a second. I want to see. Yes. Uh, okay. Angela, is the thing that you want to talk about yes. chronologically? Um, I, I just want to I want to talk about state broadband office and the fact that our legislature chose to follow form one. And we didn't have one. And, and, and you got someone who actually knew what he was talking about. Like, ah, I mean, he is. Russ has been Russ Elliott was a great person to have in that role and um, and and really drive uh, the understanding that the state needs to support broadband out into the community um, and, you know, torn between how he was going to do that by with privates and publics. And, and I don't know that we always agreed on the same issues. However, he was a vocal proponent of getting people access to broadband. Um, we are, he actually has, this next week is his last week and he will be moving on to an organization in California and uh, De- Deputy Director uh, Don Eichner is uh, stepping in uh temporarily and she will be a great resource as these funding uh, materials come out and being able to look at that but if you're if you're listening to this and and looking for an opportunity uh we're looking for a director of broadband office so and this will probably this will air probably right after russ has left um mm-hmm. and, and i just want to say like um russ and a few others like dana mckenzie in minnesota they came into the job not with um, uh, an, an animus toward the private big companies, but an understanding of of how they really acted. And I yeah. think that's really important because Russ had been running ISPs and working with ISPs for a long time. He knew the business. And it's really important in a position like that that you have someone who understands what the lies are, what the exaggerations are, and what the honesty yeah. is. And that's something that I thought Russ got and really brought to the job, uh, as well as just a passion. So um, I always enjoy talking with him. And um, I'm sorry he's leaving, but I'm hoping that he'll go on to do keep doing great things. Um, so that's, that's I agree. I agree with you completely. I think his passion and his energy around broadband was infectious, and and really what we needed in our state. Uh, and so, so with all of that, the bill eventually gets signed. Although, like, even um, you know, from the second, from the, it was like it was, two bills were passed that were had competing um, definitions. And and we're going to go back. I mean, we'll do another discussion. We may bring Drew Hansen, and we'll get different perspectives to talk about um, how this all happened. But but then, uh, clearly, the weirdest thing <laughs> of all of this, <laughs> just comically, uh, never had happened before. Yeah, so the governor has two bills to choose between, and he refuses to choose. <laughs> yeah, none of us could believe it was happening. So this this tension between underserved and unserved, this tension between kind of that scarcity mindset of you know we're all kind of like in a in a Hunger Games against each other for these FCC dollars around building our networks. All of that is just so unfortunate and. And then, like I said, mentioned earlier, the big egos in Olympia, and I, I feel like it didn't have to happen, and it was it was just um, just a real lack of leadership in the the Washington Democrats who control um, you know the Senate and the House in terms of resolving their differences in a in a non um, immature way, and and they just played all the way out to the top with the two two 
behind closed doors, double signing with the left and the right hand. Um, you know, I've been very much tempted to make some, some photoshops of it, you know, like found footage. <laughs> right. But, so um, what's at stake is that, is that one bill um, provides significantly more um, authority uh, than another bill. And um, the governor um, doesn't want to be seen as the person who chooses whether he's going to go with, uh, if I might be so bold, the people or the big, uh, not just the big companies. There were some small um, in incumbents that were also um, that were also pushing heavily to protect their turf, we might say. Um, and so the governor just says, I got elected to make big decisions and I'm not going to make this one. <laughs> so claims to have signed both bills at the same time and the courts can figure out how to deal with it. So there's still work to be done to make sure that HB 1336 is the priority and the one that's understood to be the like predominant will of the people um, in terms of, you know, grassroots support um, and who, you know, who was paying attention to which bill and who signed in and who spoke. It's very clear, like which one. Um, but there is constantly, I mean, you talk about this so much on your podcast and educate folks about, you know, the, the needs and the deep uh, misunderstanding of like what rural folks need. And so um, I got an education as well. And like, you know, my support for HB 1336, you know, might've been seen and our group might've been seen as very like urban centric by some folks that were advocating in rural areas. But at the same time, um, you know, if you talk to people that aren't profiting off of, of broadband in those rural communities, there was just so much a sense of neglect as well. And so, you know, they have their own tensions that they have to figure out. But at this point, the money is flowing and we need to have our hands out ready to take it, like every single one of us. And, it, you know, I don't think, I, I'm hoping that the new broadband office doesn't become like a gatekeeper and, and put pit uh, urban and suburban and rural folks against each other. Um, you know, I, I haven't been around long enough to know, you know, how it was before, but I really am hoping that there's enough for, for all of us to benefit. So what does happen next then? I mean, Angela, at the beginning of the conversation, you had noted that uh, there's a dramatic amount of work available to figure out which pots of money are moving where, what's the most strategic, um, how to how to manage all of this. Um, and so that's one piece of it that I'll, I'll ask you to respond to. And then, and then Laura, I think you can talk about how, like, massive education campaign to help local folks know what they can be doing in areas that aren't, you know, in Kitsap's territory and things like that. So I, I think with the amount of money that's flowing forward, what has been our saving grace at Kitsap PUD is we had data. We had already worked with the schools. We had identified students who didn't have access. We had a survey of 10,000 residents to be able to identify where infrastructure wasn't. So we could overlay those to say, these students who don't have access don't have access because of infrastructure. It's not because of a computer lack or, or the ability to afford a monthly bill. It is because of infrastructure. And so that has been a huge tool for us to be able to determine what pot of money you look at. And then also where where can we move quickly? Now, we also, because we've been doing this for over five years now um, and working with residents, we knew areas where it was too expensive. We knew areas where people were in need. They've tried to form an LUD, but it's just too expensive to take that next step. So we knew, okay, 
those are the areas we're going to apply for. We have all the data. We have all the support already identified. Those are the shovel-ready projects that we're going to push forward. As of the end of this next cycle of state funding, we will have pretty much addressed all of those. And then now we have to be more open and say, okay, what's our next way to look at this? How do we take those next steps? And we're putting together some policies where, um, where it's either grants for individuals now, where we're saying, okay, if we can get a grant where we can support uh, 50% of your build costs up to a dollar amount, like $5,000, uh, be able to have those kind of funds available and apply that equally throughout our community. Again, unserved is a requirement. And I think Laura uh, touched on this a little bit. And, and when you start looking at urban and rural, it's so easy to focus and say, okay, well, that's an easy stopgap, right? We'll just say you're served, you don't get any broadband funding. And that's what's happened. So how do we deal with that? And how do we take that next step? And I think that's going to be a huge job of the state broadband office to do that and look at those next steps. So there is equitable sharing and we are making sure people throughout the state are getting access to broadband and not just those who had, don't have access because of infrastructure in rural communities. Yep. That seems, um, it seems like you're where others will be in another year or two. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am so, so grateful that our board had the foresight to say, let's survey our community, because without that, we wouldn't have that data to say this is where we need to go. And let me ask just to, to put a um, uh, another conversation to bring it into it. Um, if the same amount of money was available under similar terms from a reverse auction in, at the FCC, do you feel like you would be less likely to to get involved in it? Um, you know, what, when you look at kind of the lessons we've learned, um, was it smart for Congress to put the money into the states as I encouraged them to? <laughs> I think it was very smart to go that way. I think, I think the reverse auction, while um, has helped a lot of people get access in high cost areas, um, some of our er areas, and I mentioned this earlier, we have a whole group um, that Starlink was awarded funds for, and it won't work. Line of sight's a challenge. And so you now have eliminated those people from accessing other funding, but yet they can't use the funding that was there. So I think every state's different. I think um, every state has different incumbents with different goals, with different drivers, with different return on investment requirements. I think it was a great um, way to take that next step to say the state is going to do this. And then our states talked about now saying, okay, we're going to distribute it to the counties and the counties are going to decide. Because again, you have those micro uh, culture where you're, you know better where your needs are. And I would just say that even beyond what you said, um, some of the companies are different in the different states. Like CenturyLink is totally different in Missouri than it is in North Carolina. So like, yeah, yeah it's yeah. dramatically different. Um, so Laura, what's happening uh, in terms of, um, of getting people to actually take advantage of this authority and make sure they can develop intelligent plans? Yeah, just a lot, a lot of education. And I don't think that we can assume that people know anything. I think this is one of those things where we really have to start off at the very, very, very basics because 
you know, every, every, if you're a community member out there and you're going to talk to your elected about, I want public broadband or I want community owned broadband or I want digital equity solutions, you're going to have to be, you're going to have to be a patient educator and have multiple meetings and provide them with education podcasts to listen to and things for their legislative aides to dig into and, and try to get them really nerdy about this. Um, and once they can get over that like threshold, then they'll make just better policy as well. Um, so I think uh, it's just deciding um, what those materials are going to look like and um, you know who's going to fund the education work, but it's needed everywhere. You know, we need toolkits and we need messengers and we need people to fund their organizers. So communi- communities need their organizers, their grassroots organizers funded to do this work. Um, and it's often being done by volunteers. And so if we really want a like national broadband movement or a Washington state broadband movement, you know, it is about having organizations dedicate like a certain percent of their time to this work. I heard from so many people last year, wow, like our organization would have loved to weigh in, that, in on that issue, but it's not even like in a top five priority for us. We're so glad you're doing it. And so there's there's a lot of vacuums to be filled by by folks. And and if someone's in Washington state in a in a community and wants to kind of get like a some mentorship on how to do advocacy, I definitely want to fulfill that role as well. Like train the trainers kind of thing. Excellent. And and that's something we're trying to figure out how we can help with as well. So um, we can make this model and, and export it to other states and things like that, learn from them as well. Uh, thank you both. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful conversation. There's like, um, you know, a day's worth of, of material to cover. So we'll, we'll, we're going to come back and maybe dig a little, a little bit more deeply. Uh, thank you both, though, for the time today. Thank you, Chris. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.